I have one thing to say to you. Kiss my fat ass. Hello, all my fellow mourners of diet culture. It is I, Emily Lubin. Welcome to RIP Diets. This is episode five. If you've not heard the other episodes, I would recommend you go back because in every episode, we're talking about a different principle of intuitive eating. There are 10 principles. So the first 10 episodes, we're going to be covering all of them. So if you are interested in the intuitive eating aspect of this show, which I don't see how you could not be interested, listen to the other episodes and circle back. But if you choose not to listen to me, so be it. This is going to be a great episode today. I'm so excited about the conversation in this episode. It is with one of my favorite people ever. But first, let's talk about principle number five of intuitive eating, which is discover the satisfaction factor. This is the official definition from intuitiveeating.org. The Japanese have the wisdom to keep pleasure as one of their goals of healthy living. In our compulsion to comply with diet culture, we often overlook one of the most basic gifts of existence, the pleasure and satisfaction that can be found in the eating experience. When you eat what you really want in an environment that is inviting, the pleasure you derive will be a powerful force in helping you feel satisfied and content. By providing this experience for yourself, you will find that it takes just the right amount of food for you to decide you've had enough. So let's break that down. This is actually one of the more fun principles because it's all about satisfaction, right? It's all about enjoying the eating experience. So this is what I would recommend. I find that I personally am running around a lot and I can't always really sit down and enjoy my food. Sometimes my days are hectic and I'm running around all day or I'm working and I get to a point when I'm so hungry, I just need to shove something in my mouth to not feel starving. And that's totally okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But when possible, I always try to sit down, plate my food on a real plate, and take small bites, really chew my food, breathe in between bites, think about the smells, think about the taste, think about what flavors I like. And it really is true that when you get used to doing this, you don't mindlessly eat and then you naturally might find yourself stopping when you've only had half your plate and you're satisfied. Or you might eat the whole thing and you think, oh, I actually want some more food and you can get yourself more. That's totally okay. But the general idea of this principle is to enjoy the experience of eating. So that's what we want to work on this week is really first deciding what it is you want to eat and then making that for yourself or ordering if you're ordering takeout. But either way, I would say plate your food, sit down and enjoy it. Eat slowly. Really allow yourself to enjoy 
that experience. And that's that's pretty much the principle. There's not really much more to it. What they said about the Japanese is very true. I actually have been getting into this Japanese reality show on Netflix called Terrace House. By the way, this is Emily in post. The Terrace House theme song is amazing. I'm going to put it at the end of this episode. It's very J-pop cool. It always seems we're on replay. I'll spare you the rest, but listen to the end of the episode. I'm going to insert the whole theme song. If it does not make you want to run or dance in front of the mirror, then your soul is dead inside. One of my favorite things about this show is that all these people in Japan, they live in a house together and they cook each other food. Like you can tell it's such a big part of the culture to cook each other food and to sit down and enjoy it together and talk about the food and make noises like mm, like really express your gratitude for the food. Um, and it's it's really, really nice. I do agree that there's definitely something that we can learn from that. Also, the Japanese have sushi, which is the greatest cuisine. If I could eat sushi every day for lunch, I definitely would. So um, take from that what you will. I want you guys to continue to slide into my DMs and let me know what you want me to be talking about. Because it really is helpful. A bunch of you have written to me and told me what would be helpful for me to cover on the show. And as a thank you, and because I genuinely think this is very, very important, I am going to read a question that I received in my DMs, which I'm at Lubination on Instagram. That's L-U-B-I-N-A-T-I-O-N. Feel free to Write me, let me know what you think about the podcast, and let me know what, if anything, you would like me to cover. And the question I received from this person, I'm going to keep her anonymous, is, Love, love, love the new podcast. Had to binge all of them with a short break after episode one to write a review on iTunes. Thank you so much. Continue writing reviews on iTunes. One topic I would love to hear more about is how to deal with negative comments from family or a partner about what you're eating. After starting to eat more intuitively, I am personally struggling when people are commenting on what I eat and it brings back the shame and makes me still eat what others label bad only when I'm alone. I've tried talking to my family and my partner about intuitive eating, but it just doesn't seem to register. I love this question and I relate so hard to it. I I think I responded saying like, yes, this is exactly my experience too. My family has been a heavy influence in my life in terms of my perception of body image and food. And in recent years, I really have had to make my boundaries with my family very clear in terms of what I am comfortable discussing at family gatherings and what I'm not comfortable discussing. And I'm going to give you an example because the holidays 
specifically uh, when my family would gather used to be very stressful for me and very triggering. Specifically, I found that my dad would make a lot of comments about the food and about how unhealthy it was or about how he hadn't eaten all day before the meal and things like that that really would get under my skin and make me feel like, oh, well, I ate today, so should I have a smaller meal or, oh, okay, well, you're kind of taking the fun out of it. You know, it, it just put me in a bad mindset. And that's not the mindset that I want to have when I'm about to enjoy a delicious meal. And a few years ago at Thanksgiving, I had just entered the early to mid stages of recovery. So I really, really wanted to focus on intuitive eating and not get distracted but I found myself being very affected by these comments. So I didn't really know how to make it clear to him that I didn't want these comments affecting me because he himself has, you know, a little bit of a disordered relationship with food and probably didn't realize how harsh his comments were. And at Thanksgiving, it kind of pushed me to the edge because my dad made a comment just before we were about to start eating the meal. And he said, I haven't eaten a single thing all day in preparation for this meal. And then I kind of, I didn't know how to respond really. So I kind of said, oh, well, I ate breakfast. And he said in this snarky tone, he leans in and he says, you ate today? And it just, it, It put me in a really bad place and I wasn't able to enjoy the meal and I was just in a bad mood for the rest of the day. And like I said, it pushed me to the edge and I was like, I need to do something about this. I need to say something and set a boundary. So what I did, and this is something that I would recommend somebody do, especially if these things are hard to talk about with your family or if they don't really if they aren't receptive to it which is understandable a lot of people aren't receptive to intuitive eating because it sounds so vastly different from what they're used to I would recommend putting it in writing send them an email and very clearly state why the comments affect you and what your expectations are moving forward so I'm going to read this email that I wrote to my dad I had to dig through my old emails. Um, this was written in 2017. Jesus, God, time flies. I feel like I wrote this email like only a year ago, but it was actually three years ago. Um, and this is the email that I wrote my dad the day after Thanksgiving, 2017. Hi, Dad. I want to discuss something with you that's been on my mind. I know you would never purposely make me feel bad, but the way you speak about body image and food can be very triggering for me. As you may or may not realize, I've struggled for years with disordered eating. I've made a lot of progress, but you constantly talk about food and weight in such a negative way, and it truly makes me anxious to spend time with you. The last thing I want to do is upset you, but I think it's important for you to know how dangerous these comments can be. 
In the past, I've engaged in some really destructive behavior because I was so anxious to be around this negative energy surrounding food and weight. For example, I've severely restricted my caloric intake the days leading up to going to visit you and the days that followed because I thought you would perceive me as fat or shame me for eating what you think is too much. Eating disorders are not something that should be joked about around me. For example, on Thanksgiving, it was not appropriate for you to tell me I shouldn't have eaten breakfast that day. According to my doctor, I'm in good physical health and I don't need to be on a diet. I've been working very hard to accept myself and have a good relationship with food, and it's important for me to not put myself down or obsess over things like calories or whether or not I should be eating something. It would be very helpful for me and my mental health if you could try and do the same. Part of my recovery has been eliminating negative influences. You're my dad and I love you very much, so I don't want to have to limit my contact with you over something that can be easily changed. So, I mean, I'm actually very proud of this email. I remembered it being a much messier, more emotional email, but I think my goal for this wasn't to make my dad feel bad or to make him think, oh my God, like I gave my daughter an eating disorder. I, it's more that I wanted to communicate that my mental health depends on being around positive energy and not having negative thoughts or negative comments around food because it only increases my anxiety around food, which is what I'm trying to break free from. So I wanted to make that very clear. And he responded, I'm not going to read the email, but he responded in a very nice way, he, you know, basically saying he thinks I'm beautiful. He doesn't think I need to change. And it was never his intention to make me feel that way, which I stated in the email that I know that it was not his intention. And I think that usually it's not anyone's intention to make you feel bad or to send you into a spiral or a mental breakdown. That's not what your family wants, but they themselves obviously have disordered thoughts around food and they influenced you. And there's nothing wrong with that. My family's attitude around food definitely influenced me. And that's why I struggled for years with disordered eating and had to come to my own realization of the way that I wanted to live my life and the way that I wanted to go about eating. And it's very different from the way that they go about eating. And that's okay. I was influenced by their behavior and their thoughts around food when I was growing up, but I don't need to be influenced by them anymore. Courage of conviction is very important. People will respect you setting boundaries and saying what you believe in and what is good for you and really having a zero tolerance policy for these comments, I think is very, very important because if you kind of just half mention, oh, well, I don't agree with that. It doesn't close the book on that conversation. They're still going to keep uh, making those comments. You need to explicitly state these comments are not beneficial to me. They're triggering for me and I'm 
trying to better myself and focus on my mental health. And these comments are doing the opposite. So, I mean, you can even like copy that email verbatim and change some details or write your own email or have an in-person conversation with your family members about how important this is to you. I think you will find that when you set boundaries like that, they will have no choice but to stick to them because the alternative will be spending less time with them because you're trying to achieve this goal of becoming an intuitive eater and improving your mental health and your relationship with food and they are derailing that. So either the comments need to stop or you need to spend less time with them. Now, as for having a partner that is not supportive or that is combative or disagrees with you about intuitive eating, I cannot speak to that. Um, I personally have a partner who is very, very supportive and who understands and respects what I'm trying to do. But then again, I have been in recovery or recovered since the day I met him. And I have always been very upfront about what I believe in and that I have a zero tolerance policy for those kind of kinds of comments. So I think when you kind of um, wear your heart on your sleeve in that way, I don't know if that's the right expression. When you speak your mind about those things from the beginning, you will naturally attract somebody who either thinks differently but respects you and doesn't have a problem with that or it won't work out because and I've talked about this in um, previous episodes a lot of diets market themselves as lifestyle changes this truly is a lifestyle change this is a change in the way we think about food and the way we act around food and I personally think it would be very hard to to have a partner that did not align with the way that I want to relate to food because food is so much a part of our lives. That being said, I'm sure that you love your partner. I'm sure you have a great relationship, but he just doesn't understand. So in that case, I would say, send him a link to this podcast. You wrote in and maybe he'll be able to tell that it was you or maybe he will just uh, see himself in the question a little bit and I'm sorry, I'm assuming it's a man, it, man or a woman, he or she will see themselves and, and think, okay, maybe I should be a little more sensitive or a little more open-minded. It is extremely important, especially if you're in the early stages of recovery, to surround yourself with people who have a positive outlook and a positive mindset around food. It's very, very important. We underestimate how much these external people in our lives can really influence us. Um, and like I said, that doesn't mean that you cannot have them in your life, but I think you need to make it known that you will not tolerate negative comments. And on that note, we're going to go in to the conversation for today, which I'm so excited for you to hear. Today's conversation is with somebody that I've known for many years and is one of my biggest mentors, if not my biggest mentor. She is the co-host of the Keith and the Girl podcast, 
a little bit of backstory. I listened to Hemda's podcast, Keith and the Girl, since the very beginning, when I was 15 years old. So when I say she is one of my biggest influences in life, I am not kidding. I have been listening to her podcast for 15 years. And when I graduated college, I interned for her and her co-host, Keith, at their studio and became closer to them, became a part of their community. And that's how I got into podcasting. So if it were not for Hemda, I might not be a podcaster today. I have no idea what I would be doing. I would probably work in a PR office or a real estate office or something. And I would be like the funny gal in the office. I could see myself being that. I I actually was that for a few years. But she has been such an inspiration to me in how vulnerable she is on her podcast and how open and intelligent. I really cannot say enough great things about Hamda. She's an incredible person and has done so many wonderful things for so many people, has such a kind heart and a very unique outlook on life. And this conversation is about judgmental families. And I thought, what an appropriate topic for this show when we're talking about how to deal with negative comments from your parents. Hemda has not spoken to her parents in several years, um, and she had a very toxic relationship with them growing up. Um, her parents are Middle Eastern, and so I think because of the cultural differences and also them wanting her to be this perfect version of the daughter that they envisioned having, there was a lot of tension between her and her parents. And we talk about that. And we also talk about what their attitudes were toward body image and toward food and whether that affected her and kind of how to break free from the influence of your parents. I am not recommending that everybody who hears this stop talking to their parents. I think there's definitely a way for most people to have a healthy relationship with their parents and still set boundaries, still not be beholden to them or influenced by every little thing they say. But in Hamda's case, she did have to stop talking to her parents, which is also always an option. I think it's important to remember that's always an option. If your relationship is that toxic, you do not need your parents in your life. You can choose your family. You can choose your friends and surround yourself with people who are positive and who are helping you to focus on your goals. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Hemda. Okay. Today's guest is someone I've known for many years, uh, and if it were not for her, uh, quite frankly, I probably would not be a podcaster. She's the OG queen of podcasting and the co-host of Keith and the Girl, which has been going strong for 15 years. God damn. Uh, I wanted her to come on today to chit the chat with me about everyone's favorite topic, which is judgmental families. We love them. Please welcome to the show, Hemda. Hi, it's so good to see you remotely I know, or it's otherwise. so good to have you. And I don't think I've actually even seen your face in three months, at least. Ever since the KTG Yes, roast. yes. Okay. I am sorry. Yeah. So... 
Hemda's podcast, Keith and the Girl, they every year they do Keith and the Girl Week, which includes a lot of the time a roast. But this year it was all virtual. So we all had to roast each other on webcam and it was a little awkward. <laughs> it was so much fun. You well, were thank great. you. I appreciate that. But and I'm sorry that I made fun of your basketball shorts. <laughs> oh, you have I mean, you should. It's <laughs> it's a beautiful, comfortable thing, but I understand that I, what I look like with basketball shorts and um yes. flip flops. So I- I relate to it because I'm always wearing athleisure, um, but it's just you have to make fun of the easiest thing. And that's the way that roasts work. Yeah. Happy to. Roasting is actually my love language. So I was I bet you were, you old judgmental bitch. I'm sorry. I'm getting. (laughs) Yeah, I'm getting a little buck wild right now. So I, I wanted to bring you on. You've been very vocal on your show, Keith and the Girl, about your tumultuous relationship with your parents is that fair to say oh yeah yeah I don't think we've spoken to each other I think it's been almost four years now which some people hearing that might be like oh my god how how you monster how could you ever stop talking to your parents but I think people need to keep in mind like a toxic relationship with your family can only get to a certain point that you can handle and I actually know many more people uh, my age who have started, if not cutting off communication with one of their parents or or, t- or both of their parents, limiting it a lot because you have to learn to set boundaries if you're going to make personal progress, especially if those relationships are uh, bringing you down and like preventing you from improving yourself. Yeah. And the thing is, is it's not absent of heartbreak. It's definitely broken my heart. And I don't think this is, you know, there are big heartbreaks that break your heart several times. There's the, you know, admitting, yeah, I'm not going to call them. I'm not going to pick it up if they do call. And they're also not going to call. It's all these different heartbreaks. It's actually a different break for they're not calling me. It's a different heartbreak for I'm not calling them. It's all, you know, and then when uh, personal problems arise, you just want to call for your mommy or daddy or whatever, you know, you were supposed to rely on, quote unquote, which is not true. If you think about it, you know, I know that it sounds devastating not to speak to parentals, you know, that you're supposed to, you know, have this guide. And then when they get older, then you become the guide and all this, you know, wonderful uh, setup that we have from Disney movies and maybe from old school thinking and when we didn't have any choice of what we were to become or how the dynamic works. But the truth is, is if Trump was your dad, would you stop talking to him? Because the thing is, is all the people marching in the street right now, let's say, for what we're marching for now, and we're always marching and doing something to move something forward that is anti the way we think, if I'm going to be doing that to other people's parents, essentially, right, because we're pointing the finger and going, you have to change, this has to be more progressive, I can't be giving passes to my parents on a personal or like not not emotionally, not personally, and not as a whole. And And they moved out of the country before they could vote for Trump. But what if they were Trump voters? Would you then, you know, if you were so... Uh, gasping at my not speaking to my parents, would you not gasp as much if you knew their political views and their social, you know, uh, justice views and 
and all that kind of stuff. Maybe everything that I am anti some other human being, I hold my parents to those standards and I can't have them having those standards and also beating me up on a personal level on top of that. So it all comes down to that. Yeah, I mean, that's very fair. And you, they they moved back to Israel, correct? Yeah. They're originally, are they both from Iran? My mother is from, born and raised in Israel, and her family's from Iraq. My father was born and raised in Iran and moved to Israel. That's where they met. So their common language uh. is Hebrew. But my mother, my mother's parents spoke Arabic, and my father spoke Persian his whole life. But they spoke Hebrew oh, to us. Okay. Yeah, multilingual, these bastards. Yeah, damn. That, and then when did the family move over here? Mm, 40 years ago. So I was four. So would you consider yourself first generation or how, do, how does that work? Because I guess I know, you were born here. Yeah, but I, you know, I think I have the first generation uh, upbringing. Yeah, but there is a difference between like, let's say, for example, my boyfriend also my boyfriend is first generation he was born and raised here but both of his parents are from the Dominican Republic and our upbringings upbringings because of that are very similar the ethnicity is similar and the reaction to parents and you know all that stuff is similar but i do notice a little bit of difference when your parents came here before they had a family and established their own single life as americans it's a little bit different than coming here with three children six six and under for this like pilgrimage together um, it's just a small difference of ethnicity. Sure. So when you were growing up, um, I kind of want to go back to the beginning, whenever that was, of like, when did the tension begin? When did you sense that your parents had certain uh, goals or expectations of you that you didn't want to meet? Really? The, any? T so I was a good girl and I really wanted to be a good girl. So you know, I really did look up to them as like, you are guiding me. They they really were successful. They were really sweet, lovely people. You know, a lot of times it's not very black and white. I can say a lot of incredible things about my parents that they really did that I feel so lucky about. I didn't have to worry about a lot of things. But the tension came when I had any opposing view. And I thought that it was, you know, you, you think you have freedom of speech because they tell you they love you and, you know, you could be yourself and always be yourself. And then as soon as I sort of started coming online, not not Internet online, but like as a human, maybe around 12, 13, I noticed that not only like I thought we would have debates and then if I had a point, it would be measured. But it turns out they swatted me for big things like you can't do that because you're a girl sort of thing or um, your brother, your younger brother can do that, but you can't. And that that wasn't once I realized like that's not really a good excuse. I started creating attention within me. Then I started going to public school for ninth grade for high school. I went to yeshiva for kindergarten through eighth. So it was the first time that I really got to pick my own friends. And, you know, it's it's Queens. It's a very diverse school. And uh, I made friends with a, a non-Middle Eastern, non-Jewish person. And I was like, hey, you know, this person's going to come over. And they were like, no, you can't actually be friends with that person. And really, yeah, you can't bring them to the house. You can socialize because you're out there in the world. And it it blew me away. I was so devastated. I went to my guidance counselor because I, I thought that's what you do. And my guidance counselor helped me talk to this person who became one of my best friends. And I was like, look, you can't come over to my house because you're not white. You're not 
the ethnicity that my parents feel comfortable with. I was sobbing through it. I was hoping that she would still consider being friends with me and not judge me for what this happened. But that became so real to me. Like, oh, I have to actually hide my true personality because otherwise I'm not going to be able to be any part of myself. And where do you think that came from not wanting to have people of different ethnicities over to the house? I think it's all fear. I think that... um you know, they wanted to keep me in this isolation of, you know, when you turn 18, you should have an idea of who you're getting married to and you should start, you know, preparing to have children and be become serious. And those children need to be Jewish and uh, they need to be it doesn't it doesn't really matter if they're uh, not Persian or not Middle Eastern because it's funnily enough, everyone, you know, is able to be racist against their own selves. Like they would love like a blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, Jew uh, because they still elevate that kind of look. And so it was just all about like, keep to yourself. And I think a lot of ethnicities, a lot of religions do that. So how would I marry someone that is right if I am, finagling what's the word with other <laughs> with these other folks <laughs> uh, yes. fraternizing fraternizing yes yes <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of like this emphasis on certain aesthetics did you feel a pressure at all to have a certain appearance or feel any pressure from your parents to um, have a certain kind of body type or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, I think they. it was understood that if I were to gain weight, I wouldn't be able to get married or be seen at all, which, I mean, they're not wrong. That's the thing. Like, it's not that I won't be able to get married, but you are seen less if people don't like your body type, if pe- if you're overweight. Um, but at the same time, it was, it was just... It's so heavy because a lot of the ethnicity is about food. So I'd go to Israel and I'd be like 11 years old. And I don't know, I think I weighed like 100 pounds. There was no body fat yeah. on me. But I was I was developing. I do have like a plump butt. <laughs> I did have boobs by then. And so I'd go to, uh, you know, relatives' houses that I haven't seen in like a year or two. And they'd be like, oh, my God, you gained so much weight. Here, eat my food. And so, <laughs> yeah, that's like the great irony of most, um, like, especially like family oriented cultures. Like I'm part Italian um, and it's a similar thing. Like you go over and you got the pasta fagiole, you got the manicotti and the uh, Parmesan and everybody's constantly, it seems like everybody's constantly fighting this thing that they also love and take a lot of value in yeah I mean it's really like how dare you not eat the food you know like if if your aunt cooks for you you find a way to even eat the stuff that you don't like but she will call you fat at some point at this meeting and you know you're just a little kid and it's it's family it's love so when the first thing literally when they look at your face and you're you know pre-adolescent pre-pubescent is wow, you gain so much weight. I feel like they actually don't know what growing children look like because when I see pictures, I'm right. just like, oh, I was just developing. Like you now saw like a more grown up version of me because you only get to see me every summer or every other summer. Get your life together. This is just what you what you shouldn't say also, but you know, mm-hmm. more accurate would be like, oh, you got boobs, you got hips. You know, I I looked like I was a baby machine before time, you know, although I got my period at 11. So, you know, if if, if I was back in Iran, that might be time. 
that and that's such a different way of thinking I can understand why like a lot of things would have gotten lost in the cultural mix there yeah my mother got married when she was 18 had a child like I think by the time she was 19 or just turned 20 or something this and that was like Oh, phew, like just under the gun, you know, she was about to be old. And she also didn't sleep with anybody except for my dad. So when she found out I slept with like more than one person, she's like, you slept with more than one, with more people than me. And I'm like, I don't know how to not do that. Like, I don't. <laughs> you would you would literally have to have sex with two people to have sex with mm-hmm. more people than her. <laughs> yeah, that happened by the time I was 19. That's wild. Um, I, I'm curious what was your relationship with food and your body when you were growing up and like how much of that do you think was influenced by all this cultural stuff that we're talking about I think I was always almost there like if I lost five or ten more pounds I could just sit the way I want to sit it's always like adjusting my clothes or um you know, is this tiny bit of fat, like, is my underwear squeezing it now? It's going to look this way or whatever. And it was, I hid very early on, like at some point, I think I was 14 and my dad bet me if I could lose 10 pounds in a month, he'd give me a hundred dollars. Um, and so, yeah, (laughs) and I, I lost the weight, but I remember in that month, um, you know, when we would have guests, which was pretty often, we would have the cakes and the naughty foods and the soda and otherwise, like, we're not touching that stuff, you know. So there was a cake left over from one of those Entenmann's, very simple cakes left over. This is so like a story that stayed Entenmann's, in Entenmann's, Louisiana yes. Crunch. <laughs> top tier. That's a top tier cake. It was the one with the chocolate on top. And it was. Oh, that's good, too. And I was doing so well on my diet. And then I, I snuck down to the fridge and I took a little slice slice hoping that you know I don't know if you ever did this math like you slice out just enough that nobody would notice it was sliced or you took just totally three pretzels from here and like two cheese doodles from there and then maybe they won't notice the difference in the bag so I took right. an actual I think slice and as soon as it went in my mouth I started feeling really worried and guilty and I went to my younger brother's room and I said look if anyone asks you ate the cake please <laughs> cover for me god <laughs> Did you end up making the cash? I did. And then he he went double or nothing for the next month. But that was so hard. I just couldn't do it. Oh, my God. Yeah, I weighed yeah, like... Yeah, for a 14-year-old. For a 14-year-old, I think I weighed like 130. I'm 5'5". I was also dancing a lot. So it's not like I was lacking in energy. If anything, they should have introduced me to weed and had me calm down. <laughs> Yeah. Um that wow, that's that must have been really strange to like have your parents be or your dad rather be like the marker of like the standard of beauty for you as a woman. Cuz like what what was his, like his motivation in wanting you to be thinner was you say like in um like the motivation was so that you would be a better catch so that like you would be a better option for men so like really how do you not see yourself as a sex object when you're developing that way yeah and also there was always like the idea that everything is slutty like no I couldn't go to the you know pool hall because that's where sluts and whores hang out and I'm just like okay and if I showed any skin like you couldn't do belly shirts or um when my mom saw my bra strap she's like what are people gonna think and it's a lot of what are people gonna think so if they had a fat kid 
they would be embarrassed to go to um, events with their family and friends. So in Passover, it would be very embarrassing if I couldn't fit into a dress that was appropriate and made me look nice, but at the same time, don't be sexy, but at the same time, look good, but not too good that a guy's going to flirt with you because that's whore-like, so make sure that... So there's a lot of balancing, like, put yourself out there and get married by the time you're 18, but don't have any sexuality or any flirtatious or flaunting anything. Right. Just like look real sexy under your muumuu. Yes. Yes. It was it was a modern day burqa of sorts. And what was it like for your brothers? Because you say that they were way more lenient with them. Was there any kind of emphasis on weight or food? Well, my older brother was underweight. So it was okay. just like trying to get him to eat. But also, you know, I thought my older brother had it a lot easier because he's a boy and everything. But it turns out that pressure came with some stuff because my dad would make fun of him for like reading on vacation. Like just like why all but slapping the book out of his hand because that's what nerds do, Emily. Oh, I see. Because vacations when you're supposed to be getting laid. Getting laid, sitting on the beach, doing nothing, not work. Reading is for like school and people who are square. And <laughs> he would, you know, he was very odd. He'd call that American. Oh, look at my son, the American reading on vacation. Yeah, fully made fun of him. I don't think anybody else in the world associates Americans with reading. <laughs> Leave it's so odd. Leave it to these foreigners, <laughs> right? Like you need to read. A, you need to read a book. <laughs> um, okay, so what what would you say is your relationship to food now? Has it changed? Do you think that there's a still a little bit of that left over? Yeah, I don't know how to fully get rid of it. I don't know how to stop thinking that someone's watching me when I'm eating. Like, um, if I binge you know or even if I if I'm at a party I hope that no one saw me at this potato chip station and at that potato chip station so Uh just stuff like that but I am a little more forgiving like I don't mind some of the weight but I do mind some of it so I, I don't know where my line is yet but I am more comfortable not being perfect because I never was and I never will be. So it does get a little bit better, but it is one of the lasting effects. Like I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin and my thoughts and um, expressing myself and talking about really taboo things, but I still associate weight and, um, and and I'm so much more forgiving with men about it. Like if I see a woman with my body type, and she's overweight, I start feeling that anxiety, like that's what I look like. I'm, you know, I lost control of, you know, my habits and whatever. But men, I don't know, maybe because my dad was totally cool, like lifting up a shirt, patting his stomach like it was a drum and he had like a little port belly or whatever. And I was like, I guess. And my mom's always like, I'm just looking to lose two pounds, just two pounds. That's he would yeah. lift up his shirt and pat it. Would he like make you rub it and make a wish? No, fuck that. Like he he tried to have me massage his hands and I'm like, I don't know you like that. No, you can't. Yeah, because he, he, you can't have a mushy relationship with someone and be very stoic for it. But what's funny is I thought all dads did that because I went to other people's houses and their dads did that too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very common. Like I remember um when I was in high school maybe like ninth grade 
And I went over to one of my friend's houses and she and her family were about to go on vacation, like a family vacation the next day. And we were making something in the kitchen, like maybe a milkshake or something, just like having fun, being kids. And the dad comes in and the dad sits down and he says to my friend, um, hey, so when we go on vacation tomorrow, what are you going to be wearing? And she was like, um... I'm going to be wearing plain clothes, like a sweatshirt and sweatpants. And he was like, no, 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 no. I'm talking about the beach. What are you going to be wearing on the beach? And she's like, um, a bikini. And he's like, yeah. And uh, what are you eating for dessert? And that that, that's totally, totally normal. But it was like one of the things Mm -hmm. that always stayed with me as like, oh, my God, even this like perfectly petite, like she was a very petite girl. Um, and from my perspective, like never had any weight problems or anything like that. And, and her dad like straight up pwned her for like drinking a milkshake in the middle of the day. It was so crazy. It it always stayed with me. Which is, it, it also like reminds you that everyone's looking at your body, like even your yeah. dad. So it's not only sexualized, it's also like from these other places, like you're still looking at it. It's so heavy, yeah. you know. No, no pun. Yes, pun. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do? And they they would also do that, like they would watch the news and comment about like who let this woman on TV, you know what oh, I mean? Oh, really? Like Oprah? Like, all, I mean... You know, Oprah's sacred, so who knows? But probably even even Oprah. But even like to me, newscasters, you should probably just be hearing the news. You know, it's not like yeah. you're watching guiding lights or something when maybe and I'm I'm giving a pass and I don't want to, but like maybe these are newscasters who allowed them on TV. Yeah, how dare place. she? How dare she grace our TV screen with her less than yes. fuckable body? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's awful. I actually I remember um, seeing a picture that you posted from your bat mitzvah and it was like a princess theme or something. And you were wearing That's not a theme. That's just the clothes. <laughs> oh, well, I was wondering yeah. like what the theme was because you were dressed like a fairy princess. It was literally the most unhemda outfit I've ever seen in my life. I am just wondering, like, did you, were you forced to wear things that you didn't feel comfortable in a lot? Or was that like just for a special occasion? Well, I was so used to just doing what my parents said that my mom picked that dress and I was like, well, obviously I need to wear this. So I didn't really have an opinion or a thought process until just about, like, I don't even remember my childhood but just about then, I was like, maybe I don't like this and I do like this. I just didn't have that voice for my bat mitzvah. And everyone was wearing poofy dresses at the time, so it wasn't crazy. I didn't mm-hmm. love that dress, but I didn't really have an opinion. I didn't really know I could have an opinion or where to get an opinion from. I just kind of went with what my parents told me. So for that, like they didn't force me, but they established a system where I don't argue. And so I didn't even know that I had a choice. That's so fascinating. It's it's literally like it's the dress from a Cinderella story. Mm-hmm. If anyone's ever seen that with Hillary Duff, it's got um like a, a a hoop skirt and like seven layers of tulle. 
And it hurt too. I had bruises in my arms because in order for those sleeves to stay that way, apparently you needed to have all this, you know, metal and stuff. And it was just oh, digging really? into my arm. Yeah. It was terrible. Um, I, they straightened I, my hair. My, they removed my mustache. It was great. They straightened your hair? <laughs> they straightened my hair, yeah. That must have taken hours. Uh, well, it was at a salon, so they have the heavy-duty shit. Like a blowout. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny. You never straighten your hair now. Nah, for what? I don't like. I don't think you've straightened your hair f- since I've known you, actually. I've, the only time I've straightened my hair is people are like, oh, I really want to see what your hair is like straight, and sometimes I give in. <laughs> so we have like one or two pictures of me straightened with my hair straightened because a friend was... Boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to um, force you to let me straighten your hair one day. <laughs> it's going to be horrible because I don't know how to straighten hair either, but we'll That's see how it goes. I just like to have fun. So I'm like, I don't know if you want to play with my hair for an hour. Okay. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, so we got a question or I got a question from somebody about how to deal with negative comments from family members. And I think it's like, it's definitely something that a lot of people deal with. That's why everybody dreads going home for the holidays and like being subject to all these questions, whether it be about your diet or like, oh, why do you need to be eating that? Or, or like if it's about your lifestyle, what would you recommend to somebody who does want to maintain a relationship with their family, but is having trouble separating their self-esteem from those negative comments? I do think that's very, very difficult. And that's the challenge that I think like you do have to tolerate some stuff if you're going to tolerate going back home, knowing that that's other people's personality and you can't change them. One is a great book, The Six Pillars of of Self-Esteem. That was very, very good. And the other is, I'll tell you what I did um, one of the last times that I I did speak to my mom. She was at my house. And it was just constant, you know, I I woke up in the middle of the night, she was making cookies and she's like, these aren't for you. These are for your friends. You know, you don't need these cookies. And I'm like, you're in my kitchen, you know? Uh, And then, and I'm like, I don't like those cookies anyway. But, uh, and the next day I wore, you know, like more uh, fitted jeans. So you saw a little bit more of my body and and she's like, oh, actually that looks good. Like, you know, you kind of look thinner and she's like, oh, you do have a waist and whatever. And what I said to her was, look, you know. You keep saying stuff like this. I just want you to know that I have a mirror and whatever you're saying, I already know. So let's stop this line of talking to me because believe it or not, I know exactly where I am in my weight and you're not helping. And she actually understood that me telling her that I have a mirror, like sort of just the truth. And this isn't really, it's not your being a bitch. It's not you're hurting my feelings. It's I, I have this, I have this experience. You don't need to add to it. I love that. And that's actually something that you could do more playfully or less playfully, depending on how you want to go about it. Like you could be like, listen, bitch, I have a mirror, you know, smile through it. And like, that could be a more, um, cause I think people don't want to, people don't want to have serious conversations. And I think, Another thing that is unfortunate but true is that people only have a limited number of things that they're comfortable talking about. And for some reason, bodies and diets and what people are eating and how people look and what it seems to be one of those fair game topics that people just go to when they have nothing else to say. 
I mean, even when someone's pregnant, it's like, what are you having, a boy or girl? I'm like, why? What are you planning to do with the genitalia? Like, yeah. Why, why is that our only question? You know, because when you think about it, you can't come up with another question. I don't know. How's your farts? Like, that looks like it would weigh heavily on your body. <laughs> yeah, <know>. for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, knowing how to shut those comments down. And then if they keep happening... I think there is um, value in telling yourself as many times as you need to tell yourself that you can't control other people. You can only control how you react to those people and how you want to live your life and they don't have any control over you. So to just remind yourself of that. But I thought that was a very good question. I thought, you know, not everybody has such a toxic relationship with their family that they would want to set crazy boundaries or whatever but they still feel upset whenever they're around their family because they say mean things to them and maybe don't even realize they're mean or maybe you already have that relationship that they're comfortable saying it to you and they don't know how much it affects you so you need to just like tell yourself listen these people are my family but I mean they're not geniuses. They're not like the be all end all authority of like what an acceptable body is. Like my parents went to uh, UConn. Okay. It's not like they didn't go to an Ivy League school. <laughs> Let's just say that. Well, my, uh, I also think it's okay to be like, hey, I don't know what you're getting out of this, but it's actually just hurting my feelings. And then just sit there in the discomfort and see if they won't second guess the next time they're going to totally come that. you know like sometimes you just haven't said it and it's not you're a dick for saying that stop saying that it's hey i that makes me feel uncomfortable it seems like that's the only thing we talk about i'd love to talk to you about something different great suggestion um where can people follow you find you consume you <laughs> I have a podcast, like you mentioned, called Keith and the Girl. We've been podcasting since 2005. We have over 3,000 episodes, but you could start wherever you want. Um, it's really fun. You can go to keithandthegirl.com or Keith and the Girl on any platform. I also have a podcast with your co-host of the Hot Mess Comedy Hour, Andrea Allen, uh, and Tracy Carnazzo called Only in New York, and we talk about things that basically only happen in New York, and it is as disgusting as you think it would be. <laughs> it's it's really good. And also, as like a, a gateway into that show, you can look up, I was on Only in New York um, a little while back. Listen to my episode. If you like it, subscribe. Yeah, we have Emily episodes of all of our podcasts. Keith and the Girl, yeah. <laughs> Only in New York. Thank you so much, Hemda, for coming on the show. Thanks for chatting. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Hemda of Keith and the Girl. Slide into my DMs. Let me know what you thought of the interview and what you think of the podcast in general. Again, my Instagram is Lubination, L-U-B-I-N-A-T-I-O-N. Hit me up. I love, love, love to hear from you guys. And if you like this podcast, there are so many things you can do to support. You can take a screenshot and make it your Instagram stories. Or on my Instagram, for every episode, I share an audiogram, which is just a little snippet of part of the episode with a fun image of the guest or of something else. And you can just share that to your story or share it to your page. It's a great way to help people find the podcast. I really want us all to spread the fucking word because this is something that needs to get in people's 
ears. People need to stop dieting. It is a fucking trap. So that's it. I will see you guys next week. But I've been stealing time, thinking if I try, everything will turn out right. We're caught up in the climb, love was far behind. Someone's gotta stop this madness. When all